MHI Industry Leadership Podcast brings together the solutions, providers, and thought leaders of the materials handling industry to talk about trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices to move the industry forward. Christian Dow is the Executive Vice President of Membership and Industry Leadership at MHI. In each episode, Christian will be talking to the leaders and members of MHI's industry groups. Let's join him now. In this episode, two members of the Solutions Community Condition Monitoring and Reliability Committee discuss, well, condition monitoring and reliability in the context of the material handling industry. Key technology trends, common challenges, and business outcomes are examined with technology experts from the field with real stories to tell. Learn from failures and the success of others to help guide your own program. Today, I'm joined by William Leet and Daniel Goodger. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So William is the Senior Manager of Implementation and Customer Experience and Success for Honeywell Connected Warehouse. Daniel is the Global Product Manager for Integrated Condition Monitoring with Rockwell Automation. William, will you tell us a little bit more about your background? Yes. Um, so all my background, probably 10 years now, coming up on 11, has all been around uh, condition monitoring, not all in the same industry of materials handling. Uh, my background actually comes from uh, the HVAC world and energy management, then a little bit for uh, consulting machine builders, and then ultimately ended up at uh, Honeywell Intelligrated, but now part of the Connected Enterprise Group, where I'm pretty much responsible for implementing our uh, our condition monitoring solutions. Great. And and Daniel, can you give us a little bit of back, background on yourself? Sure. Uh, so I've my entire career has been with Rockwell Automation, to which I've been with for 12 years. Um, 11 of those years, I was a technology consultant with application support uh, specifically for condition monitoring, more specifically vibration analysis. And about 12 months ago, the opportunity arose for me to be the product manager for those products. So I'm going to actually start, uh, I'm going to rearrange what we're going to talk about because uh, in the introduction, William talked about other industries, and I think you both have a lot of experience in other industries before we kind of dive into material handling. So what what are the other industries that are have current interest in this topic in condition monitoring or liability? William? Sure. Uh, great question. Um, so probably the long history, and it's just dinner table talk with my dad who worked in different oil refineries is the technology has been there for, you know, probably well over 15 years. Um, but my experience, actually direct experience would be back in HVAC and buildings. Uh, so building automations, controls, HVAC, lighting, uh, those type of systems, managing energy usage, which is obviously very relevant today when we talk about sustainability. Um, and then, uh, I would say with, with designing any type of high automation was the other experience. So anybody that's an OEM building equipment that uh, uh, does just about anything, uh, even those in materials handling, I got to consult and and how uh, those type of systems would be built and designed and how to monitor those solutions. So it, it fit right in with with joining on as part of Intelligrated that does materials handling uh, and, and uh, also works with some of the industrial customers that are there. So uh, we've, we've only started to see it maybe recently in MHI uh, and materials handling in our industry, right? But it's been out there for buildings in 10 years, been out there in refining for 15, industrials, probably uh, even before uh, buildings there, maybe maybe 12 years. Uh, Daniel, maybe you've got a different opinion on some of the other industries and how they're using it. 
No, I echo some of what you were saying there. Uh, condition monitoring was historically more reserved for specific injuries, um, industries, sorry, such as oil and gas, heavy industries, mining, applications which had large critical assets. Uh, these days, I'm seeing it in any industry, food and bev, pharmaceuticals, they want to apply condition monitoring to some extent on on all of well many of their applications so it's not so much on those large critical applications such as turbines anymore people are wanting to see the benefits of condition monitoring in all industries including oems and systems integrators as my inner cyclist uh I'm, i got condition monitoring i'm walking with right now right right, right. <laughs> your steps bicycling miles heart rate all of that absolutely yeah we see it in our houses these days so have you seen a change in the condition monitoring market in recent years daniel Yes. Historically, it was reserved for critical applications such as oil and gas, turbines, mining, large assets. Um, because of the cost of the technology is reduced so much, the connectivity has increased. Um, we're starting to see it become more available and easier for people to use that aren't vibration experts because Previously, you needed to be quite a vibration expert to really delve into that data. And things like analytics have simplified that to an extent. Um, because of COVID, uh, people are encouraged for more agile working practices. And because our assets are being monitored and they're connected, it's easier to dial in to see how, how healthy they are. Um, and customers want to see condition monitoring on their plants for, for optimization. They're looking to that for optimization purposes to get the most out of their assets rather than waiting for them to break down or replacing parts periodically. They want that predictive element to it. Yeah. William, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. I'd probably just add in general, like the products have gotten better and more mature. Um, a lot of the intelligence that it took to kind of build something from the ground up is kind of making its way into those products. Um, if I think about it and the challenges that other industries and mistakes they've made, it makes it a lot easier now for uh, pretty much any, any industry to start digitally transforming. You know, you got to think back on uh, going to the cloud and cybersecurity was a huge hurdle, right? And now there's a lot more offerings for that. Selecting even the correct sensors that are going to work with the right system, having, uh, you know, if you wanted to have your own predictive maintenance solution, like Daniel said, you got to have your own reliability engineer or maybe a data scientist. But But now there's kind of, somewhat shared resources in terms of intelligence and being able to have like extensible uh, software or, or scalable solutions where normally that wouldn't have been there. So the products and technologies has gotten better. Um, and the other side of it was Daniel kind of had mentioned like agile, especially, or um, even lean principles coming from the manufacturing side. You know, if you had gone back in time, you know, just three years ago, no one's heard of that in a distribution center. They're the historically considered cost centers, right? Why would I, why would I ever invest in something new like that? So change in mentality, products have gotten better, technology's there, right? It's some of the intelligence is making it into the things we use regularly. Yeah. It's not just the sensors, right? It's the sensors, it's the controllers, it's the, you know, the, the cost per point for whether it's analog or, or, uh, you know, different networks and things like that, like IOLink or other, um, protocols and things. It's just, it's made it a lot more, uh, point cost effective at, at the point of use. Right. And smaller for that matter, you know, and, and maybe it's because other industries have developed it and taken it so far that it, it spreads to other industries where maybe it's not, as Daniel mentioned, oil and gas and things like that, where it's absolutely critical to monitor certain things. Well, now that technology gets developed and 
maybe you have a lot more points in material handling, you know, where you're going to monitor, but you're doing it at a much lower cost point because it's been developed and the technology exists uh, at a lower cost point. So it's it's really yeah this this has been fascinating since we started this group to really kind of talk about it. Um, what kinds of problems are companies trying to solve when it comes to condition monitoring reliability within our industry? Uh, well, can you give a couple examples and maybe even the examples that came out in our committee? Sure. <laughs> um, there's there's probably I'd, I'd pick like three main problems there, um, and it's usually around probably assets, operations, and people. Um, I know mm-hmm. those are really big categories, right? But uh, operationally, what I'm when I'm looking at reliability, I'm not necessarily trying to save a motor per se, right? That the motors are going to be replaced. I'm not really totally preventing the cost of replacing that. Uh, I care when that motor fails, it impacts my operations for the day, right? So we, we hear, you know, hey, I need to manage on my P&L. It's, I really care about labor. And the reason I care about reliability is because if I have a motor go down in a critical component and the whole building stops and everyone's just playing Candy Crush out on the floor, I'm, I'm paying a lot of money per hour to do a lot of nothing, right? That I'll have to make up later. So that's kind of the operation side. Uh, clearly from an asset management standpoint, it's, you know, increasing the life, life of the equipment. I think there's a study out there, you know, you reduce the vibration in a piece of equipment by 20%, it doubles the life, right? We're, we're still pretty new. There's not a database of all these things and how much longer they've lasted with the right procedures necessarily. Um, but, uh, you know, gen- generally there's an advantage to increasing the life of equipment. That's why I do reliability. Um, and then the other part of it is just um, the, the people side of it. Um, so when I think about, a, a mature like condition monitoring or predictive maintenance type solution that maybe a maintenance team adopts that has vil- visibility for their operations. Um, you're you're really letting that person engage with the work that they're doing instead of just time-based maintenance. You know, if if I always uh, go and just do a visual inspection, do I feel like I really did any work? Versus now I have a system that will actually tell me when to perform it and validate that I did the results. And it might even reduce the troubleshooting that's involved, right? If it can tell me what the problem is and be able to react, I'll feel good about what I do. I, I think that everybody really wants to grow and improve and perform better. So this is like an enabling technology that for an already uh, hard to find set of skilled labor for maintaining complex automation that they're kind of looking for, right? So I would, I would just center around those three operations, assets, and people. Nice. Daniel? Yeah. Um, I alluded to it before. There was, there's kind of three approaches to maintenance. There's the reactive, which is fixing it when it's broken down, periodic, fixing it, replacing parts periodically, when even if they don't need replacing. And then there's predictive, and predictive is kind of the output of doing condition monitoring when you're doing it effectively. Obviously, we don't want our machines to break down without uh, any notice. Uh, unscheduled breakdown can cost customers lots of money. Um, the problem with uh, periodic maintenance is we're replacing parts uh, when they don't need replacing, kind of like how we service our cars. The uh, we, we replace air filters periodically, and they're not completely blocked when we replace them, but we replace them every, you know, during that, that uh, interval anyway. If we're monitoring and monitoring the airflow, for instance, then we can have a break point that says, okay, we're getting inefficiencies now. Now's a good time to replace the part. And therefore, you're getting the most life out of your your product. Um, again, if you're monitoring it uh, effectively, you can have that um, predictive element to it. And therefore, you can schedule the, the maintenance activities. Lots of customers... Um, 
they they run their plants you know 24 7 but they usually have a shutdown period for maintenance because uh, they're quite aware that the machines aren't just going to run forever um they ideally want to perform all maintenance tasks during that period of time not just randomly when the machine breaks down if they deploy a predictive maintenance strategy uh they can they can factor that in and perform the maintenance when it actually needs to be done uh, or when it makes most sense to be done. Um, other reasons and more, more I call obscure uh, are quality. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find it best to give an example. Um, it was a CNC machine. And when the actual cutting tool became blunt, it creates chatter, which actually ha- has an effect on the surface finish of the product. So it ended up with um, defective product. Uh, so if they monitored that spindle, not only were they able to monitor the actual bearing so they could have the predictive element for the actual machine itself, but they were able to monitor how much life was left in that tool and to replace the tool when it needed to, resulting in um, less defective product. Other things like machinery protection, but again, this really goes back to historically what well, we see it on turbines where they want to shut the machine down when it starts um, vibrating uh, because it could end up in a catastrophic failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like when, uh, y- you know, obviously when when you don't maintain it or you're not able to take care of things at maintenance, you know, at a maintenance period, then it it can take care of it for you by by having it go down. And the example that was given during our committee meeting was the difference between a couple of hours with no, uh, you know, none of your staff sitting around waiting, waiting on a, you know, something that's not operational uh, and being in, in the cost difference between having a, over a thousand people stand around with a, uh, you know, in this case, it was a belt breakage was the example given and a four hour changeover, you know, when you're, you know, and so that that's obviously a more catastrophic event when uh, when the the belt fails versus catching it early, uh, and then also the the catastrophic impact to your expenses when you have that many people standing around not able to do uh, their their jobs and things. Um, so it's it really is kind of a you know you can see the need for it pretty quick. Um, how are companies setting out to experiment with condition monitoring and reliability? How successful are they? And what advice would you give them, Will? Yeah, great, great question. A lot of, a lot of people are experimenting. Um, I mean, we've seen certainly the, the buzzwords being thrown around about IoT, digital transformation, condition monitoring, predictive maintenance, artificial intelligence, all, all of this kind of uh, alluding to that theme there. Um, but, but really, uh, especially during COVID, probably people have been a little bit fearful about it, uh, even though it's not really a new technology. Um, but understandable, there's a lot of people in the market, probably over 400 different offerings in the marketplace for people claiming that they do you know, predictive maintenance, right? Or, or some version of that. And it's really kind of hard for customers to differentiate. So uh, the default mode is I'm going to spend a little bit of money because it seems like not a lot of risk to try it out. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But people get caught in a kind of DIY solution, like a senior controls tech um, comes in, kind of builds their own solution there, but it, it doesn't have any of the scalability or cybersecurity to be deployed at an enterprise level. Uh, some of that intelligence that's been more recent that's happened um, from other industries and, and just from uh, moving towards a cloud type solution. Uh, so what you see is a lot of, um, I'm going to start with something with 10 sensors and deploy it. And I spent you know, maybe 20K building my own solution. And then at the end of the day, what was my payback? Uh, it just put vibration trends on a dashboard, right? It didn't complete the, 
the loop. Um, so companies that are setting out, they're experimenting, but you, you hear about pilot purgatory, eight out of 10 pilots end up failing, right? And it could be really discouraging. I mean, some people are doing pilots that, you know, last a year, two years, they go on to three years. Um, and they're really not defining like the end success criteria financially that's, that's going to be that result. So we see a lot of mild investment, but it's not, it's, it's already set up for failure by the time they do it. Cause they haven't looked at like an enterprise wide scalable deployment. That's going to address all of their assets with this longer success criteria or a way to iterate. Right. If I, if I'm, if it's not going to work for me, I hope it fails in three to six months. Right. And then I can, I can stop. But some people are at the, the three year mark going, well, we still think it could work, right? I'm like, I, I don't know how many things you buy that don't work for three years that you keep around without trying something different. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, right? A car that is just a lemon. Um, so it, it's been mixed results, but there are customers that are out there that we even see in the MHI studies that have had success. Um, so when we do the MHI annual report, if you go back and look at last year, uh, it was like 30% of existing companies are using it. This year, the report came out with less. It was maybe 22 or some percent. Um, so, so people are a little bit discouraged, but there's a base number of people that are getting results out there, right? Uh, it just seems intimidating because if you start out and you're not getting the millions of dollars in savings some other large company has, it, it, it just seems like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere with a small, small installation, right? Right, right. Daniel, do you have anything to, to kind of talk about, you know, going back with the, um, experimenting with condition monitoring reliability uh, and and what how successful are companies as they kind of experiment and kind of dive in a little bit it's interesting that other people are having the same experiences as i had i'll never forget the application where someone had a wind tunnel and they wanted to monitor a fan that hadn't broke down in 30 years and they were thinking how long it was going to be before it proved the concept and i was thinking <laughs> mm. <laughs> so whenever I went in at customers and they were keen to do that, one of the first questions was, which asset gives you the most headache? What worries you? What you know, what's going to break down? Because there's no point monitoring something which uh, never breaks down or that doesn't have enough value that warrants monitoring it in the first place. Maybe just a small motor, which is uh, takes 10 minutes and a 30 mil spanner and, and the job's done. It doesn't impact production at all, I'd, I'd say. Don't don't bother. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see um, that hear the opinions coming from other people, which are quite similar. And there is a lot of people that are venturing into the the world of condition monitoring now. As I mentioned before, the the um, historically the the industries that were doing it, and now newer people or newer industries are doing it, and and you know they don't have the confidence in things they haven't done yet, so they just do want to. Um, uh, they want to test the waters and see how it works for them. And uh, vibration monitoring, and I've, I've noticed this more in recent years, we're, we're seeing lots of different flavors of um, vibration monitoring or condition monitoring. And it can range anything from, I always, I always explain it, it's like comparing a grape with a grapefruit. They sound similar. They're very different things. And a vibration sensor can be so basic that it gives you, it, it potentially doesn't give you much value, potentially, uh, or it can be, really comprehensive and then it becomes very feature rich and you need to be an expert and so there's a there's a delicate balance so one vibration sensor can be very different from another one um and it's important that people know you know what they're getting and that they're they're correctly informed i think and analytics that's another one um uh, analytics to me is machine learning and artificial intelligence real real analytics and uh i'm not being a bit of a snob i suppose but um the when I, I see some people um, 
describing analytics as just dashboards. I'm thinking, you know, we've, we've been doing dashboards for a long time. Lots of companies, it's displaying data, it's visualization. It's not really applying much uh, intelligence to it, provide new predictions and the analytics, the machine learning element on top of it. So I, mean, I think it's important that people are correctly educated on, on what it all means. There's lots of buzzwords out there at the moment. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit because that, you know, that was kind of, so is data analytics and data science changing the way condition monitoring is performed? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, vibration analysis um, historically took an expert and still does. There's those guys on the site, which are taking samples from their machines and they usually spend most of a week taking a sample from the machine and the last two days analyzing the data. And they're really experienced people um, that, have all the necessary vibration qualifications and know what they're looking for. These days we're seeing analytics or that that artificial artificial intelligence doing that work for them to a certain extent. Now it's going to be a long time before we start seeing a PC doing the same sort of work as a vibration practitioner who spends all his time monitoring a turbine with 30 years experience. But a lot of applications in those other industries, such as food and bev, they're quite simple. They're just electric motors, pumps and fans. And you don't need to necessarily do a full analysis on those types of applications. So that's where analytics can come in because it can it can do the simpler applications much more. For those applications that aren't um, where full analysis isn't necessary, it, it can definitely play a role. It eases the implementation so it can help them with the configuration so when it comes to vibration and you're a vibration guy, you usually go through a, a, a series of different parameters collecting just the right type of vibration sample to give you the picture that you need to see. The analytics can do that to a certain extent for you. So it, it eases the implementation of it all. Will, go ahead. I think you... Yeah, I was just going to maybe add to the... Uh, commercially, I haven't seen too much of a change. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around it, uh, you know, ML... AI, those type of things, but but I I don't have people coming knocking on the door that that come in and say I'd like I'd like to buy one machine learning please maybe two, you know it, it's can I it's can not I as add, simple as that can I add AI to that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> exactly, um, but 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 what we do see is people are recognizing that oh, okay if if I was historically a cost center now I'm this journey to I'm considering my my distribution and fulfillment centers or warehouses now I'm trying to run them as a as a manufacturing and more efficient and resilient um I really care about you know reliability but I I doubt that many people I only know of a few people that actually have a reliability team right or 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 people that can afford it if you think about um you know some of the distribution centers out there no one's really willing to invest in an additional person or more than one person. You might probably need a reliability engineer, someone who's familiar with vibration. You might need a data scientist to, to build some kind of ML model to make that scalable. And then someone's got to monitor the whole cybersecurity side of it, right? I mean, there's four people out the gate you got to have. Um, so people are recognizing, like, I don't have that skill set. I'm already short on IT people and controls technicians and maintenance technicians already. So they're starting to lend themselves to, I need, I need the product to have that intelligence built in for me, right? Um, so that's that's probably the change we see. No one's going out there and consulting and trying to build their own models. They're going, hey, you, you, if you're an OEM or a manufacturer of any component, you've got you know 30 sites live. Maybe you know as of last year, I want to leverage all the power that they have um, and apply it to mine. Right? You've done all the hard work for me. Uh, so people are starting to recognize that that level of scalability of the intelligence starting to be built into the products more often now. So let's talk about 
you know, in, in your experience in, in this industry, but, you know, in the material handling industry, but other industries as well, the, the companies that are successful with it, what are the results that they're seeing? What are they, what are they getting out of it? And I, you know, I, I know that like the things that they're not seeing is probably the things that they're getting out of it. Right. They're not seeing the unplanned failures and, and things, but what are the things or how are they, how are they measuring their success? And, and, you know, it, it, it tends to be a boring result, I think, which is kind of hilarious because it's like, you're, that's what you really want is no excitement out of this is, is that you want nothing to really happen and disrupt your operations. Yeah, I used to, <laughs> I used to tell customers, I hope their machine broke down soon. <laughs> but well, what do you think? Yeah, there's, um, there's a little bit of a, it's, it's a little unique to each business, right? Um, so there's a little bit of a decoder ring that you have to have to translate some of that to a business result to roll up to some level at an executive who can say, oh, it worked, Let, let's keep going or Let, let's expand and put, put, put the network on, right? You know, not just one site deployment, but multi-site. Um, you know, we, we obviously see the first thing that I kind of talked about when we were talking to disruptions of operations is you'll see it hit, hit the bottom line or P&L in terms of idle labor hours, right? And if you go into uh, a site right now, there's just a lack of the correct tools operationally to even know a baseline of their downtime. So, you know, we see that 80% of businesses probably misestimate their downtime by 200 to 300%. So when you walk in and say, how much downtime do you have annually? They go, uh, uh, 80-ish. Right. And it's usually just based on someone's best pencil whipping for uh, maintenance that they may be performed. Right. Um, so usually it's it's hard to have that baseline already established. But then when that downtime operation, how does it affect their business? If it's um, stopping a two sorter system versus a retail versus e-commerce versus post and parcel, there's, there's a very different system configurations, layouts. They have a very different business model that they go to market with. So the labor piece is pretty straightforward, but when I talk um, from that unplanned, uh, unplanned critical downtime that I avoid, how much capacity or throughput that I gain can be very different between each of those businesses. Um, but I can tell you, you know, the, the, the more challenging one maybe is probably the, the instance of the retail, because if I ship something late to store, uh, someone may still go buy it, right? It's not e-commerce. I'm not losing a customer post and parcel where I have to issue a refund for missing uh, a certain SLA there. Um, but I'd say, you know, over the course of the year, if you had 4,000, uh, 400,000 more units that go through the door, what's that worth to you? Right. And everybody has a different value of their average cases or 4,000, 400,000 additional capacity. What, what is that? What is that? What would that mean to you? Right. Does it prevent you from having to build an addition, additional distribution center? Cause you've freed up capacity that, that would be critical, especially during the pent up consumer demand with COVID. Right. No one could build a DC cause the parts weren't available. All the supply chains tied up. But if you could offer somebody a portion, you know, a third of a distribution center in terms of capacity to your existing infrastructure by deploying the network, all right, now I'm now I'm listening. The throughput part's important. So as you see, you know, labor throughput is certainly one of them. Um, there's a range of categories that they talk about in predictive maintenance. The Department of Energy had a study about 10 years ago, um, and they have a whole bunch of different categories: reduction in downtime, uh, reduction in troubleshooting. But overall, over a regular maintenance program, it's eight to 12 percent. Right, so that's that's pretty significant, and that's from a report from ten years ago for buildings, right? Uh, so it's probably only gotten better since then. The few outliers I've seen recently, though, um, when we start talking about um, definitely health and safety and sustainability, uh, or even resiliency, is is if I can't get replacement parts, um, and I'm going to have 
ebbs and flows and demand and peaks, um, and especially pent up consumer demand. Um, I really care about continuous operations and being able to meet my goals there as efficiently as possible. So that's where you hear the most efficient cost per case shipped. Um, I'm trying to do that and also manage my energy use. So I'm trying to have the lights on in the building the least amount of time, run the system as quick as possible, achieve my daily goal and get that out there at the lowest cost per case shipped. It's all kind of tied together. Um, and then we do see a little element of our, there are safety uh, benefits. Um, I actually get a little bit nervous now walking around full speed, uh, systems and distribution centers, because if you had like a hammer sized object fall out of a box and it's happens to be on a conveyor moving at near, you know, 80% of its top throughput, uh, if that falls off the conveyor, that's, that's, that's cracking your skull. Um, and then just spending time up to maintain a system. You look at the noise ratings of a system. Um, I get a headache after 85 decibels, just hanging around some conveyor in a building. Right. So we start seeing some of the safety benefits of this. And we have seen a customer with uh, like a, a piece of rebar sitting in the bottom of this order. And if that kicks up, it starts throwing slats. Um, I'd, I'd say compared to other industrial companies, we don't have light curtains. Our, our safety for distribution centers is probably a little bit behind some of the other industries. Yeah, e-stops uh, and pull cords, right? Right. <laughs> uh, so so I, I kind of see that element uh, evolving a little bit on the sustainability and safety side of it. Uh, but the big two really have been, or the big three, it kind of comes back to the assets, peoples, and operations is my throughput, my idle labor that I'm trying to avoid. And then can I make my, you know, limited skill technician that I, that I, that I have, I'm lucky to have them. Um, can I make them more effective? Cause it's going to be really hard to get another, right. Or to train someone up. Yeah. Before uh, I pass it to Daniel, one you mentioned the falling off of a conveyor at a, on a second, third level or something. And, uh, you know, I was at a, uh, a Dell computer facility back in the day when it was CRT monitors that were being shipped out. And so massive boxes that were, you know, <laughs> 60 pounds or more and things like that. And we're over at the labeling lines. So I look over and we're on the third floor mezzanine and I'm looking over at uh, uh, one box gets stuck and then three or four more hit it. And then it starts rising up, creating this, oh, this mountain of boxes. And then they all start toppling over, dropping three stories down to the floor, you know? And I go, is that's not supposed to happen, is it? And so then the maintenance was like, stay here. And they start running and shutting things down and stuff. But it can be a really uh, scary and dangerous uh, when, when things like that happen, you know? And that, you know, whatever the cause, if there was, uh, something wrong with a conveyor, a broken um, guide or something like that, or, you know, whatever with the cause was, but, you know, the, the result can be very dangerous and, and, and happen very fast. Cause those were just, those are probably moving at, you know, five to 700 feet per minute. Cause they're yep. just transferring things. They're flying very fast. Um, so, but uh, anyway, Daniel, do you have any, um, do you have <laughs> something to add to, uh, Kind of the, the 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 comment there on you know what are the companies seeing you know as far as what are the successful programs looking and uh, what are what are the results that you might get out of a successful program? Well, to your last point, um, how the heck did it pass a risk assessment? <laughs> but um, yes. yes, I'm I'm seeing um, <clears throat> so those vibration practitioners do exist on some sites. Um, some vibration practitioners look at the the online systems as a, as a as a threat that could potentially make them redundant. Others look at it uh, as uh, something that could help them be more effective with their time and complement their their job roles. Um, 
I typically see an even balance of them both, really. Um, so if we took a simple vibration monitoring system that can potentially provide more complex stuff for the vibration guy, an operator can have on their HMI just a simple alarms or on a SCADA system just to raise an awareness when a, an asset needs to be looked at and analysed. And only at that point will the vibration guy go in there and analyse the data, whereas before he'd spend all of his time looking at assets which weren't degrading at all. So um, there are people that are, are using it to be more efficient with their time. Absolutely. So as kind of a wrap-up, this last question will be kind of a wrap-up for us and kind of a uh, maybe a summary of, of our discussion, but, um, but, a, but also... A, you know, a good kind of where do they start? So what are some of the greatest barriers to success for condition monitoring or liability programs and technologies? And what kind of risks are there? Can you tell me about, you know, successes and failures and in it and with failures, why do they fail? Yeah. So I guess probably some of the greatest barriers to doing it is, um, well, it's, it's probably overwhelming. There's whose responsibility is your organization enabled you to, to go and look at a program like this. Right. Um, in some cases, it's it's really just like their maintenance manager is tasked with whatever you can do to make it better. It's not an enterprise-wide program. There's no director of reliability. Um, so to, in a lot of places, there's maybe a, um, a a lack of knowledge or leadership at the local level. Like, am I supposed to take on, you know, I'm, I'm normally accountable to just keeping the system up and completing my time-based PMs. I don't want to do anything different, right? Um, so there's like a, a enterprise or like company level of enablement that has to happen, that this is something that we care about and it's expressed at a leadership level. Um, otherwise, you're really just relying on some of your your first adopters kind of on the bell curve to take the initiative, prove out that, hey, look, condition monitoring worked at my site. I want to be the hero and now the, deploy it at all of our assets across the enterprise. Um, but but how you know what's the chance you have leaders like that at every distribution center that's going to do that? Um, or that they happen to be within your company. So there, is there is there like a organizational enablement that yes, we want to transform and and start using this technology to have condition based monitoring, and then set aside time and resources to be able to do it. Um, there's there's nothing I know of necessarily so far that you can just click to cart and have ML and it solves all your problems right out the gate. Um, you still have to do some of the legwork and understand and translate that to your own business case as a customer to set that success criteria. Um, so with, without that organizational kind of enablement and that culture that's there, that can set you up immediately for some failure, which is just that you just don't innovate. You don't even look, right? Um, or the, the, the budget with which you're allowed to go look is just a, a, a few dollars and you're not going to get anywhere because you'll install a couple sensors, you'll get a couple squiggles on a dashboard, but no one took any action on it, right? And so the end of the day, business result is a goose egg. The P&L doesn't change. Right. There's no ben benchmarking or baseline to look at a, a financial success criteria to see if we won or lost or if we're getting better. Um, so people will in invest not a lot just because their culture doesn't allow them to. Um, and then they'll they'll they're kind of a, uh, there's a fear of failure. So, uh, you know, looking at how many do fail because there's all sorts of reasons and learning from other industries, um, being able to rapidly test and make sure it is working is pretty important. Um, so one of the things that we even find, and it's probably one of the advantages of you know why a lot of solutions out there on the software side continue to have new features and development and support, um, is you know one it's the scalability, cybersecurity is, is baked into it, regular testing of that. I have customer success, um, but I also can iterate the agile process to keep improving the product. Right, um, so it's easy to put out a, a base 
ML model that's out there that's going to look at motor vibration. But if the results give me 50% false positives and the business case is actually a wash because half the time I'm going out to do nothing and I'm wasting my time and the other half I'm predictive, right? That's not bad. That's not failure. You're, you're part of the way there. You can iterate and improve. Um, but if you're able to do that in a short cycle and find a way to get better, you know, that's, you're, you're moving the needle. Um, as opposed to a lot of people try it. This product didn't work. I'm going to spend 50 on this one. Uh, that one didn't work this year. I'm going to go to the next one. I'm going to sink another 50 and get nothing out of it. Um, and there's not like a, there's a, there's a small cycle iteration and, and a use of money that's just not getting anywhere and you kind of lose trust. Um, so, so kind of this longer term strategic, this, this kind of cultural vision of what's going to be able to happen internally that you can kind of see, um, the other parts are actually a, a little bit easier, right? Like the cybersecurity problem, everyone's aware it's a problem. There's technology out there. Um, so that barrier historically, there's a, there's a lot of fear and doubt there. There's other industries that have had multiple failures. You know, you look at people trying to connect to everything and, and it doesn't work because no one's a domain expert in everything. Um, so, so there's, there's a lot of ways you can fail. Um, probably, probably what I'd say is the technological barriers aren't as pronounced as they were anymore. Really, it's more about, do I have the right people in place and can I build the right culture? Because the tools are out there and available. And then I'm, am I iterating and understanding what the financial success criteria is going to be of this type of solution, as opposed to just deploying it and hoping and you know praying that it works, right? Can I actually measure it? Yeah, own, ownership. Yes, yeah. Ownership's, a, 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 I'd say, a problem is a thing. Um, I've seen companies before wanting to deploy condition monitoring on assets, but once it's deployed, um, it kind of gets ignored. Uh, I've, the amount of times I've walked past HMIs, it's got alarms flashing on and uh, they're just being ignored by the operator and the people aren't getting the right message. And when the machine fails and uh, and it doesn't get picked up, it's the equipment's fault. Um, and that's, that's around a culture thing and an ownership. If you use that data properly, um, you can ensure that the right people get the right messages. So maybe the operator, you know, it, it's not his his job to do the maintenance activities or mine, monitor the maintenance activities. But if you sort of monitor the maintenance activities, but if you were to ensure that the maintenance person gets that data, um, then it's more likely to be actioned upon. Another thing, and, and we spoke about this earlier on, is the, the proof of concept purgatory. Um, you, Make sure you're monitoring an asset which is worth your while. Um, else you're just not going to see the value in it. Well, yeah, the, gentlemen, I thank you for... Uh, Will, did you have something else to add? Oh, I was just going to say the, the part I'm excited about is that the technology is there and it works. We have lots of examples, which was probably the hardest part. Um, just the, the cultural change now is just something, you know, when, when they invented like the first TV screen or even the radio, they're like, that doesn't have any use. That's not going to be used anywhere. Right. And, and it worked. It was perfect. It, 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 it did all the things it was supposed to, and it was only going to evolve, right. The minimum viable version of the, the, the new invention was there. Just people didn't know how to adopt or use it or apply it, you know, necessarily. Right. And, and if that's the last piece that we have to figure out, uh, I, I think that part's pretty easy. Everyone, everyone's going to figure that out. It's just a matter of time. It's just a little bit of a race between, you know, organizationally, are you nimble enough to go, go and be an innovator, right? So, well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Condition Monitoring and Reliability Committee, uh, go to mhi.org backslash solutions dash community. Uh, you can also read more uh, about our community or about our committee on the uh, warehouse automation 
blog, the MHI Warehouse Automation blog can be found on uh, MHI.org as well. Uh, and then uh, follow the MHI Warehouse Automation page on LinkedIn. Coming up at Promat in March, uh, Will and a few other committee members will be speaking on condition monitoring reliability uh, in one of our on-floor seminars. And that seminar will be recorded and uh, put on our, our uh, webpage as well. But Will, do you want to give us a little background on what to expect at the uh, seminar? Yeah, uh, definitely. So, so a lot of exciting kind of thought leadership coming out of this this new committee that's here. There's pretty diverse uh, industry knowledge that's that's come to the table that we'll get to present. So, I know in this this podcast we anecdotally talked about some of the value and some of the things we've done uh, in that seminar. We'll get to get down to the numbers, right? We'll show you actually, you know, how much people are saving, what the scalable value potentially looks like, um, the types of failure modes that happen, and common failure modes in materials handling. Um, how you can address those with, with different types of sensing and how you might might build a program and be able to monitor those conditions uh, and take action on them. And then we'll also show you some uh, not not so successful stories so you can learn from some of the uh, uh, the hard lessons that that others you know before you have kind of experienced with with de- deploying some type of uh, condition monitoring technology. So we'll we'll definitely be more be more in depth, but you actually get to see some real dollar signs, real use cases, um, and you get to hear from a, a wide panel of the industry. Um, you know, with different perspectives from the ground up. Um, so it would be a really interesting uh, seminar I'm excited about. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. And uh, we look forward to future podcasts on this topic. I'm sure we'll have a, a lot more to bring in 2023. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for joining the MHI Industry Leadership Podcast. Join us next time to learn more about the trends, technologies, solutions, and best practices that are moving the industry forward.